This podcast is brought to you by the Immigration Law Series by Emond Publishing, Canada's leading independent legal publisher. Welcome home, everybody. This is a podcast about Canadian immigration law. If you're an immigration practitioner or a student looking to get into this area, or maybe just someone looking to learn about immigration, this is a podcast for and about you. Chantal and I will tell you what you need to know, bring you expert guests to share their wisdom, and we're all going to have a lot of fun doing it. So sit back, enjoy, and welcome home. And now, Chantal is going to do some interpretive dance. Woo! Check me out. Check out these dance moves. Look at this one. Can you see me? Can you see me now? What about now? Economic immigration is the bread and butter for many immigration practitioners. However, it is also characterized by rapid and frequent changes, which can leave many of us feeling quite exasperated. Today on Welcome Home, we are interviewing Andrew Carvajal. He is a partner with Deloge Carvajal Law Group. And as you can see from the name, he is my law partner, which makes today's interview very special. And he's working so hard over there running our Latin American group in Colombia that this is literally the only way I can get his attention for a few minutes. He is the head of economic immigration at the firm, and today he is going to be talking to us about the many changes which have recently been introduced in the economic immigration category. Hello and welcome. We are here today with Andrew Carvajal from Delage Carvajal Law Group, DCLG. Thank you for joining us, Andrew. Thank you for having me, Catherine and Chantal. We're very, very excited. I know that you have been um, previously, it was called Delage Law Group, so congratulations, that's fantastic. Um, and I know you've been there quite a long time. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what kinds of immigration law you practice? Yes, sure. Um, so I've been, <laughs> I'm trying to remember how long I've been with uh, working with Chantal Deloge, um, I think maybe around eight years or so at this time. Sounds um, right. Previously at Deloge Law Group, which now um, I'm very happy that it's now called Deloge Carvajal Law Group. Um, and I'm the head of economic immigration. So I basically do anything that has to do with work permits, helping employers bring people to Canada, handle the LMI applications, all LMI exempt work permit applications, study permit applications for international students as well, and, and then uh, that transition to permanent residence, right? So former international workers now applying for permanent residence through federal and provincial programs. Same thing with students uh, who become workers in, in many cases and applying for permanent residence. Uh, and we do a little bit of entrepreneurs too. So getting work permits for them to come to Canada and then apply for permanent residence, mainly through federal, but also sometimes provincial programs. So that's kind of like what my my team specializes on and and what we work on and, and a few times we do citizenship for some of our clients and and business visitor tourist visas and things like that but uh, other people at the firm at the firm handle all the litigation and the more humanitarian and non-economic applications that's fantastic that works very well because that's a nice mashup with what chantal's expertise and and area of practices. Yeah, I find it's it's virtually impossible nowadays uh, to be good at everything. You kind of have to subspecialize, and I think most people are doing that nowadays. Absolutely. I know I give all of my humanitarian work to Chantal, so <laughs> it works very well for all of us. For sure. So today's topic is really kind of discussing all the changes that are constantly being thrown at us as practitioners. And I noticed that there is a new knock out there, Andrew. How are you finding it? What do you like about it? What do you don't like about it? I like it. So, so yeah, so, so Canada likes to obsessively organize all occupational categories and all jobs into this national occupational classification, which they revise every 10 years. Um, and in 2021, we had a revision which was implemented in November of last year, both at the federal and provincial levels. Um, obviously, this impacts LMIA applications, work permit applications, but mainly permanent residents. And I think it's been a, like, I mean, sometimes I think you need to give credit to the government where, where they do something well. And, and I think this implementation has been really good. I haven't experienced many issues uh, in terms of the logistics or the practical aspects of how it's been implemented. 
Uh, it's exciting because they re uh, since it's a major um, change, they've recategorized a lot of the um, occupations. Now it's a five-digit code instead of four, and they've. Uh, I think uh, one of the most significant changes is that they changed that skill levels skill type category that we had before to what's called the tier system. The um, training. Um, yeah, the so the tier system, the training, education, education experience, experience and responsibilities, and responsibilities uh, categories. So, I mean, I, I mean, in practical purposes, what what this really did for us was that it allowed some occupations that before were considered non-skilled occupations to now be considered skilled, uh, which is great. It means that they can apply under programs that they weren't eligible before. It downgraded some of those that were considered skilled before to non-being skilled now. But not many, only three of them. Um, and yeah, I, 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 I like the new system. I think it makes more sense with our kind of our labor force, the education and, and training that's required for a lot of the occupations. Um, and, and we've, yeah, I mean, we've seen some great, some clients who never applied before under skilled labor programs like truck drivers, um, statisticians, for instance, um, now being able to qualify, and that is great because, I mean, those are occupations that are in high demand in Canada. Yeah, I guess uh, some people went to bed one night being uh, classified as unskilled and woke up the next morning being classified as skilled. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, luckily, those who switched from skilled to unskilled are not many of them. I mean, one of them is the performance, which includes like fashion models, influencers, magicians, puppeteers and those we we don't have a lot of those clients uh seamstress um tailors those were classified as non-skilled now they were skilled before i think where we've seen most impact in terms of our clients is recreation and kind of like sports and fitness instructors so those were before classified as skilled and now they unfortunately they've been dropped to non-skilled i think fitness instructors very skilled I mean, if you see what if you see the work my trainer has to do to me, sure. <laughs> I, I won't comment. But the door was wide open. I'd like you all to know that I'm a work in progress. One of the things I find interesting about the new NOC and tier, and uh, you know, I'm with you, Andrew. All these acronyms, uh, I constantly forget what they what they are, and I always have to look up what's tier again. Um, even NOC, you know. I'm like classification, classificational, mm. national. Anyways, um, one of the things I find about the new NOC tier system is that a lot more education is needed for jobs that I traditionally wouldn't think education is needed for. Let me give you a couple examples. We had a, an agricultural specialist manager uh, come through, and when I was looking at it, uh, my client is approximately 50, 55 years young and um, had no university or college education, but had been in, you know, fourth generation greenhouses. And then another one was an HR, a senior HR rep uh, who didn't have a degree. And it seems like when I looked up the Noctier, I started to ha have to get a little bit more creative because the ones that, that they fit precisely required degrees um, and it, it said is required on the knock and I find that can be somewhat challenging do you ever push the envelope on the education required for a work permit if the knock says is required do you ever push that envelope when you're doing a work permit? um not often I mean I I think it but one of the good things about the new system is that it has an alternative. I haven't tested it so much, but I think we have the option of doing it now. Because before it used to be your degree, right? University degree, college degree, high school degree, whatever was the lowest uh, level of education that you needed to have. What's interesting about the new tier system is that it gives you options. It's either a university degree or years of experience in the industry and and less education it, it they always like if, if you read kind of how the tier works they always say university or and then they mention years of experience in a lower tier and then if you look at the college one it says college degree of six months or more or previous experience in the lower tier so i think it, it does open the door for us to make the argument that 
you might be an HR manager who didn't do a college degree or university degree, but you've had so many years of experience there. Where I think, I mean, you you kind of have to, have to draw a line and, and maybe you won't be able to be successful is with definitely regulated occupations. I mean, we're, I mean, to be a doctor, you need to have a doctor's degree. To be a, a what? regulated engineer, you need to have um, like the engineering degree, same thing with like lawyers. And, and I think some of those very traditional occupations, I think it's going to be a little bit more difficult, especially if they're regulated. But I think the new tier kind of opens the door to saying that you might have 10 years of experience in an occupation, not have the college degree and still be able to qualify. I think I'd trust the person with 10 years of experience <laughs> compared to somebody with a college degree and one year of experience. For sure. <laughs> I think that's really helpful for listeners because... Sometimes we feel like we can't push those boundaries, and uh, I think it's important that we do because at the whole point to me of the change in the, the Noctier system is to say, hey, the government of Canada has finally recognized that education isn't everything. Um, you know, experience does count for a lot more. So I, I think it's really fantastic about that, or at least a lot, like maybe not more, but you know, there should be a, you know, a little bit of discretion baked into the system where you can say, well, you know, that this body of experience is just as good as having a degree. Yeah, I agree. And I think it also depends on the context. For sure. And I think that's the reason why they threw, threw, threw in the extra E there of not just education, but, but experience and the way that they built it up um, kind of like reflects that, which which is the case in in the labor force, right? I mean, you might have someone who, and as Chantal was mentioning, like the experience sometimes might be a lot more valuable than the degree that you have and the discipline in which you have that degree. Let's move on to express entry. We've seen a few draws at the 7,000 marker, which is pretty incredible. Do you, and please look into your crystal ball, Andrew, do you think that the CRS scores are gonna get lower? And, and if so, how low? I'm Where hoping do you think we're going to be in um, a year. I I think there's there's some uncertainty as to what the draws would look like, but I think, I mean, we're finally done. I think with the I mean, just for those listeners who might want to get a little bit of context, what basically. We had some certainty with express entry draws where we're in the 460s, 470s, very high scores. <laughs> you still have to be young, highly educated, sometimes have Canadian work experience or education to be there, but at least we had some certainty. Then COVID happened, no draws were happening. We started having mainly provincial draws, some CC draws, and then up and down. But fi finally, when they reopened, we're in, we started in the territory of the 500s, which is very hard to qualify and now we're going to the 490s and 484 uh, and kind of like the 480s with these big draws. Now, normally I would say, okay, now that they're starting to invite people in, in I mean, in, in large numbers, we'll get back to the 460s and 470s and that would be great. I mean, it's still very competitive. It still gives priority to people who have Canadian work experience, Canadian education, which is great. I, I think that's something very valuable to to being able to settle in Canada um, and yeah, like and, and work and be compatible with the Canadian labor market. What I'm really concerned about, to be quite honest, is this whole idea that they might be starting to have occupation specific draws because that throws off any kind of certainty that we know in terms of what's going to be competitive and what's not going to be competitive. And because personally, I've seen it with Ontario, Ontario is now almost exclusively doing occupation-specific draws, both for their express entry streams and their non-express entry streams. And what's happening is that what used to be a great alternative to express entry for clients who might be older or their English level is not as high or uh, they, they didn't have a competitive score is no longer an option because even if they're competitive under Ontario's own point system, they're not being picked. And what I find extremely frustrating is that what Ontario is doing, and, and, and again, they have their reasons, right? Like they, they look at the labor market, but a lot of the draws have been health practitioners. So they're inviting people who are in the health sciences in regulated professions to come from outside of Canada 
instead of inviting people who might be in other fields. And, and these are fields that are regulated, or it's hard to find a job. You might not even be able to practice your job. Um, and, and yeah, like it takes away all kind of certainty. So if we see the same thing happen to express entry, I mean, we might see draws go down. I mean, if, if it stated with general draws, I think it would go down to 470s, maybe 460s. But if we start having specific occupation specific draws, I mean, it's hard to know the number, but what might end up happening is that only people in IT occupations, health occupations, trades get the invitations and, and what's gonna happen with the rest, right? And is this what? only going to affect people outside of Canada with federal school worker? Okay, maybe that's fine. But what about Canadian experience class? All the students who came to Canada with that promise to eventually get work experience um, and, and eventually do permanent residence. So, I mean, we'll, we'll have to see. Wouldn't that sort of, um, I mean, if, if they started to do a lot of occupation-specific draws, I guess the, the challenge with that is that you never know what occupation it's going to be next, right? Exactly. I mean, mm -hmm. You can maybe make an educated guess, but it wouldn't be anything more than that. So it would sort of change the way that we would have to advise clients, right? Like we couldn't advise them anymore based on, okay, well, if you get this high level of points, um, you have a better chance than someone with a lower level of points. You'd almost have to tell anybody who was eligible to go ahead and upload an express entry profile because you never know tomorrow they might be looking for plumbers, mm -hmm. right? Exactly. That's the concern. And, and so first, I mean, doing that consultation of those who are already, let's say they're already eligible under one of the programs, you might, you have to tell them that, I mean, this score used to be competitive whenever that was the case, but we don't longer know it's higher than the last draw, but we don't know which occupations are going to fall under. But I think it goes even further because for us who work with people who haven't come to Canada and we're trying to discuss our options and we used to say, you know what, a good alternative is to study, get your Canadian education, which gives you more points, get your year of Canadian work experience, which gives you more points and then apply for permanent residence. If we don't know that they're even going to get invited because of their occupation, I mean that they might not even like choose Canada to begin with. And, and that's what really concerns me. Uh, if they start doing this with the Canadian experience class, which is composed of many former international students, they might be killing that promise of studying and working in Canada as a way to eventually become a permanent resident. And then we're not as attractive, right? Because we're competing yeah. against like whatever Australia and all kinds of other countries. Correct. Yeah. So we'll and have to see how they roll that out. Ed, but it, it, at least, I mean, what I've seen in Ontario is that I have excellent clients who have been employed many years with their employers in Ontario. They're well paid, but they're not getting drawn because they're not the occupations that are in demand, I guess. And I think it's a, a big selling point for the Canadian system to have some predictability. As you mentioned, Canada is competing against all these other countries for new immigrants and for talent. And if you want that talent, you have to have some type of predictability in your system or at least predictable options for those individuals so that way, when they get their work permits, come to Canada, start working here or going to school, they can say the chances are fairly good that if I continue along this path in, you know, two, three, four years, I'll have my PR status. I think that's important. And for sure. That's, that's a it's reminder like... for the government. <laughs> I hope I hope there are some government people work listening to this particular podcast. Are you listening, Ottawa? <laughs> no, I agree for sure because, I mean, in the education front, it's an investment, right? Like it's a lot of money to invest in a Canadian education if that can help you eventually become a permanent resident. And for a lot of employers who are trying to attract people to come to Canada and work for them, the selling point many times is that the permanent residence. So if they're trying to decide whether to be relocated to Canada or to Australia or to some other place, and there's no predictability, I mean, I think that that makes it really challenging. I agree. And I think the other side of the fence is going to say, yeah, but but then maybe because we only want these particular occupations because there's a need for them in Canada, maybe it's okay if those individuals do relocate elsewhere because they're not in occupations needed. 
So that's, I think... But that's it's clearly not the case, though, because, I, I mean, what Andrew was just saying is that you have these people that are here filling that demand now. Already, correct. Yeah. Yeah. So I was just going to say, I think it's a, a bit of a weak argument because, well, then why are you here working already, right? Yeah. If um, there's no job for you, why are you here doing it? <laughs> exactly. Um, but I think it's uh, always interesting that sometimes people fall short of that, that point. They say, well, but these are the ones that we really need people... Uh, for well, also, are you setting yourself up to just create a labor market demand in another sector, right? If we're not making broad-based draws, okay, like healthcare workers, yes, we critically need them right now. What about five years from now? Like we need to be thinking long term as well, right? Like, absolutely. So if we cut the supply line off for certain other occupations because we're over focusing on one, what's to say we're not just creating another demand in another area? Yeah, we yeah, might need. Sure. 50,000 accountants, you know, five years from now, but mm-hmm. maybe only 10,000 right now. Well, it makes it a nightmare for representatives too, right? Because sure. what, do you, what do you actually tell people? It's like, I can tell you what it is at this exact nanosecond, but literally five minutes from now, this could change. And, and it, it, I, I do feel like, and I don't know about you, Andrew, I do find sometimes that's what it feels like these days. It's like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, and, People... it's, and it's very frustrating because that's why they're, I mean, they're, then they're asked, okay, what's the point of paying for your consultation if, if you don't know the answer? Like, I mean, I've been sitting on express entry for like a year and a half. No, I mean, I want to, I want an answer. And, and unfortunately, I mean, we, we might know a little bit more, but if, if it's up to whatever the labor demand is at that point, and I don't even know who how they get this information, we, yeah, we, we can't really advise as much and, and as well as we used to do before when we had a draw every two weeks and we knew, kind of knew where it was going to fall. Yeah, the good old days. Well, it, it also reminds me of, you know, the, the, this pattern has repeated itself historically as well, right? Like you remember back when they used to put occupation caps on CEC, um, Federal skilled worker had the occupations list as well. At yeah, one point. exactly. And then they, they realize something's not working and they reject it. And then, you know, a certain amount of time later, everybody forgets that it didn't work and they try it again. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Especially because one of the issues that I have with that as well is if they're already in Canada working, that occupation is a little bit different. But if you're having, let's say you start doing general draws so that you include cc fsw fsd for certain occupations um and and you're pulling a lot of people from outside of canada to in theory come because they have experience in those occupations right there's no guarantee they're going to get jobs in those occupations and they're, right. they're going to be able to work there i mean first of all there's a regulator occupations where it's a hassle to be able to get your license but even if you come as an accountant I mean, you might not be hired as an accountant right away. You might be working as a bookkeeper. Luckily, as a bookkeeper, but you might even end up working as an administrative assistant or something else, just because of how hard it is to get into the labor market. So, I think that was the criticism of the federal school worker under the cap system that it had before, and I mean, and we could be going back to that. Yeah, it'll definitely be interesting to see how how it evolves post COVID. Um, The other thing, too, is I find there's not much predictability in the current CRS numbers because certain countries, you know, had different travel requirements. People were hesitant to travel post-COVID. You know, we weren't, as you mentioned, during COVID, we were mostly doing the PMP draws. Now we're doing mostly no program specified. But, you know, until I think two, three years from now, once it stabilizes a little bit more, then I think it'll be really fan, like a little bit more predictable unless we move to this occupation specific. So it'll be interesting to see where we land. So do you think they're going to do it, Andrew? Yes or no? Let's let's take bets. I think I think they're going to for sure. I mean they've they've been announcing it, but I think it would be interesting to see if they just have some specific draws combined with general draws, which could be a good way to go. Or whether yeah. maybe they go back to specific draws for FSW, which is still challenging, but at least, I mean, I think what I'm mainly concerned about is the people who are already in Canada with jobs, those should be able to transition to permanent residence. If, if you only limit it to some people and not others, I mean, there's, it, it, I think it's very complicated for everyone. There's people who are working as administrative assistants, who are working as those occupations that normally are not seen in demand that are 
I mean, they're filling a, a labor need and and they should be able to transition to permanent residence. So I'm, I'm hopeful that if they do it, at least the CEC will, will not be, I mean, there, there won't be draw occupation specific draws in CEC, or at least they'll have some general and some occupation specific. And that way, at least we'll know with the general, okay, where do we stand in terms of points? How competitive do you have to be to be able to fall under that general one? But we don't know. <laughs> They also, the feds also announced changes to the post-grad work permit by extending it, but they haven't exactly told us how yet. So do you want to perhaps tell yeah. us a little bit about that? That's always That's interesting, true. isn't it? So this <laughs> is a another, secret. I mean, this is one that it, it's a great policy, which makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of, I mean, if, if we want to have people stay in Canada longer, should be people who have the possibility to work. They're probably, I mean, a lot of them are in the labor force. They, because of COVID, they haven't been able to transition to permanent residence. So I, I like the policy for sure. We had it, we've had it three times now. So post-graduation work permit holders were able to extend in 2021 by submitting an application. Then 2022, we had this new system where people automatically get their work permits if they fall under very specific parameters and then others have to apply. And then this year they're going to do another extension. So, so I think I, I like it for sure. What I don't like is the way that they've been rolling it out. And this way, I, I don't know. I think I prefer the system where I say you're eligible to extend your permit, go and apply. But the way that they rolled out this whole extension last year, where people were supposed to be getting notifications or getting their permits automatically, it was a mess because representatives were getting the notifications. People were not getting the notifications. Um, and it just, again, it makes something that should be predictable, extremely unpredictable. And, and if people, I mean, if we just have an announcement that starting on Jan on April 6th, people are supposed to be getting their work permits, but they don't have an updated address. And there's a lot of variables that just make it complicated. So we'll see. I mean, they, they say, they say that they've learned from their past mistakes and that they're going to be implementing those lessons to the rollout for this year, but we'll have to see how, how it works. We don't have enough information yet. Yeah, I, I like the way they said, we're gonna extend it another 18 months starting April 6th, but we haven't, we're not gonna share those details as to how we're doing it with you just yet, so hold tight. And then I know I saw in the immigration listserv that it could take a couple months for uh, them to announce those changes and exactly what the criteria is, which means individuals will actually be in limbo. Mm -hmm. And that's really not fair. Yeah, fine if your permit's already valid for another one year, but what if it's expiring in the next couple of months and you have no idea exactly. what's going to happen? Yeah. Yeah. What if, yeah, what if you expire April 7th? Then yeah. what? So You mean what I... if your permit expires? So yeah. If you expire, then <laughs> it's not a problem anymore. <laughs> oh my yeah, I goodness. I think that's very problematic. And because they they basically say, oh, we're gonna fix. I mean, even if you're if if you're under restor, even if you're not within the restoration window, we're gonna allow you to restore your status back to worker. But I mean, that what if someone's permit is expiring right now? Should we try to just like submit an application and say this policy is supposed to change in a couple of months, please, or let the clients? status it re expire and then be restored later but like that doesn't really work for the client for the for the for the employer if you let their status expire and, and then what about the employer exactly. do i allow that person to continue to work for me or not am i going to be found in violation of of the regs or not so i think it's it's problematic and i think that although good intentioned and again i enjoy the policy i like the policy i think it's great but I think when they make announcements to say, here's what we're going to do, they should have, the second breath should be, here's how it's going to be implemented. This is the eligibility requirements. Here, here's the process for qualifying. Because people are going to be left in, in it lingering, thinking, what do I do now? What if? And they're going to come to us. They're going to come to the consultants and lawyers and say, well, what do I do? And there's nothing better than saying, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. There's no way to know. And there isn't. And it's just, uh, it's not good. But It's a little half-baked. I mean, like, get the policy ready when you're ready to launch it, announce it, and then do it right away with the details. Exactly. Right? For sure. 
starting and, today people can apply and let people apply don't don't tell them okay you have to wait to get a notification a couple of months from now to see whether you're eligible or not but yeah i mean that's that's the thing that's that so it that's that's my main concern it is what it is if things yeah. were easy people wouldn't hire us right yeah exactly oh. <laughs> it, it it's definitely not like it used to be in the 90s where it'd be like immigration like the manual the application forms, and that was it. There Did you know that articling students nowadays have dates of birth in the late 90s? <laughs> <laughs> I almost died the other day when I realized that again. <laughs> You're very dark today. Let me just say that. <laughs> You're a little dark. I'm feeling it. You're killing my mojo over here, girl. I'm going to go lay down now. <laughs> 50, um, I need a nap. <laughs> oh, my back. From sitting in this chair. <laughs> um, one of the other changes and extensions was the visitor to worker. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that change? What are your thoughts on that one? So this is an interesting one because I think it's highly mis like people don't interpret it properly, uh, especially let's say like applicants don't interpret it properly. But also sometimes, I mean, I, I've seen some of our colleagues, uh, like some consultants or lawyers that sometimes misinterpret what it really means. So this was a good policy that was introduced during COVID because people were stuck in Canada because of the borders being closed as visitors. And they told them, you know what? I mean, normally we require that to apply for a work permit, you apply outside of Canada or upon arrival in Canada, unless you fit certain requirements, right? You're already a student or a worker or things like that. But a visitor to a worker can't be done. You have to leave or apply outside of Canada which is fine. And then they introduced this exemption for people who were stuck here and, and they were like, okay, no, now you can switch from visitor to worker. They extended it and now they extended it for another two years. Was it Catherine? Like until yeah, 2025? February, February, yeah, February 25. So that's great. But what I'm concerned, and especially when I go to a lot of immigration expos around the world, what, what I find a lot of people interpret from this and they say is that, oh, I want to apply under this work permit where you can come to Canada as a visitor, work for mm -hmm. six months, and then you apply for your work permit. And, and since we have a lot of countries that don't require a visa to come to Canada, it's, it's relatively easy to come to Canada. I mean, Mexico, for instance, being an example. I mean, a lot of people are just taking this as an opportunity and employers as well as, why don't you come and we test you out? Uh, and since you can switch from visitor to worker, um, you, I mean, you just work for us for six months or whatever, and then you, so I, my concern is that it encourages some people to work without authorization and some people to just kind of like pack their bags and say, I'm moving to Canada to find a job. And, and it really, all it's changed is that it's not an, like a special work permit category. You still have to qualify under an LMIA work permit or an LMIA exempt work permit. It hasn't made any easier that part. It just means that you can switch from visitor to worker. Yeah, um, so then some people might come work illegally, realize that the employer needs an LMIA. The LMIA is not feasible. And then what? They're stuck here. Um, not being able to change your status. Yeah, because some people, I, I've heard this question myself as well, that they confuse the eligibility to apply for the work permit with the eligibility to actually get the work permit. <laughs> yeah. It's just a rule about where you can apply. It's not about a new work permit. But a lot of people say, oh, I, I, I want to apply under this new work permit that is you go as a visitor, you find a job, and then you, you become a worker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and we have to be cautious because of that federal court case where um, I, I don't recall the name of it, but I know it's on one of our podcasts because we have discussed it in great detail, where the individual came to Canada as a visitor, at, got the LMIA while they were here visiting, and then went to switch. And lo and behold, they went back to the border to switch. And the officer said, no, they didn't go to the border they, they switched inland. They wanted to go under the policy, and the officer basically found that they had misrepresented because when they were entering Canada, they were asked a few questions about whether or not they intended to work, and they answered no. Yeah, that's always a problem, right? Because uh, when you come into the country, 
uh, as a tourist, you should be coming to visit and do what you need to do and then leave, right? So if you have a premeditated notion that you're going to get an LMIA and get a work permit while you're here, arguably you've not told the truth at the port of entry. And that's what that case was about. So yeah. that that is really, that's super tricky. So the only way you could really do that legally is if you came into Canada quite honestly as a visitor and just happened to randomly meet up with an employer while you were here and then the idea of the LMIA came about while you were already here but yeah. how often does that happen yeah pretty rare and, the, and I think the the other thing that I noticed too is that there's just because you can apply for a work permit inside of Canada I mean the, the legal test is still the same right in terms of proving that you have ties outside of Canada and that you're likely not to overstay after your work permit is done and and i think that sometimes when you have someone who comes for six months then they extend for another six months and then they want to apply for a work permit even though they can apply technically inside of canada as a visitor they might not be the best candidate to apply inside of canada because they've left their job for a year they've kind of been here and and i think a lot of officers are suspecting that they that they're just working illegally i mean if it's someone who's came from a semi-skilled occupation, I don't know, like they just, they haven't worked for a year. It, it doesn't seem like they've been doing, visiting someone here. I mean, I think, again, it, it lends itself to maybe people doing that and then applying for a work permit. And even though they're allowed to apply inside of Canada, they might still say, well, I'm not convinced that you have ties to your home country. And, and I think sometimes we, we get those clients who have been here as visitors, they extend. And sometimes you tell them, you know what, it's, it's better to leave resettle, apply from outside of Canada, or even just like leave, get your documents together and, and then apply at the port of entry. So yeah, I mean, just because you can apply inside of Canada doesn't always necessarily mean that you should, depending on your circumstances. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The other thing too, to consider are the processing times, uh, you know, Canada right now is That's around true. six, six months. And there are countries abroad that are taking two months. I mean, we just got a work permit and I hope you're sitting down through India in three weeks. What? Yeah, three weeks. Um, a work permit from file from the date of filed to date of approval and passport request. Three. You better weeks. go buy a lottery ticket. I think I should. <laughs> now we're talking. Um, but there are other countries like you know getting a work permit application in if you're in UAE where it's taking around forty weeks. Uh, so one of the things I'm always looking at is, is where is it, if a person does qualify under that particular program and, you know, they're eligible for it, should we, uh, you know, as Chantel mentioned, should we do it? So let's look at the timing and the entire situation. Does it, did the person work here illegally or not? Because I might want to have them go home to try and clear that up a little bit and not muddy the waters and show the intention to comply um, we had one person who overstayed inadvertently. They had submitted an application to renew their work permit, but filed the wrong application form and then got the refusal. And in the refusal, it said, by the way, you've been working here illegally this entire time. Wow. So in that case, we said, hey, you should, you should depart Canada and let's clean this up properly. Yeah, I, th I think there's also... Um, Another layer to that is that you have to also consider the processing office, not only in terms of speed, but in terms of expertise. Um, you know, certain offices are much more adept and used to handling certain types of applications, right? Like not only the yes. type of application, but also, you know, the documentation that is available to prove work experience, et cetera, from that country. Like if you're from a certain country, your documentation looks a certain way and it can be better to you know, that the local visa office would look at it because the officers there would be used to those documents and they know what they look like and they know what they are. Absolutely, 100%. Yeah, for sure. And also trained at, as, I mean, knowing which documents are, yeah, like government documents and official documents, which documents could be forged and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. They also changed, the federal government announced changes to the caregiver uh, requirement from two years down to one year. Did you want to talk about that, Andrew? Yeah, sure. Um, so that's happening April 30th of this year that they, um, we, under the new, well, <laughs> relatively new, because they were 2019, but under the uh, caregiver pilots, so the one for child caregivers and home support workers, 
to apply for permanent residence or um, to have that the permanent residence component um, processed, now they only have to show one year of work experience in Canada instead of two years, which is great. I mean, I, I, I think anything that can be done, in my opinion, to help caregivers get permanent residence and get into Canada is great because, I mean, it, there's a huge um, lack of, of caregivers here. The pilots have very positive things, but they've also made it very difficult to get work permits so because of processing times and the way that they work and the cap. Um, so, I mean, I think anything that can make it easier for them is good, especially because if we think about it, we're talking about people, occupations that are normally considered semi-skilled. So, so they don't, they can't qualify under the federal programs like Canadian experience class. They can't qualify under a lot of the provincial programs. So this is the only way for them to apply and, and it's good. I mean, I, I think one year of experience in Canada in an occupation that's in high demand, I think that that's good enough to to be able to get them to process their permanent residence. So that's starting on April 30th, and it will apply to new applications, but also applications that are already processing, uh, people who are already under their work permit, getting their experience. And we're looking forward to, to yeah, having some of our clients apply at that point uh, for the permanent residence. Well, I think just as a policy notion, it, it, like anything you can do to make it easier for struggling you know, parents, for example, is, is a good policy. And I mean, if that's going to encourage more people to apply as caregivers, then that's great. I mean, I don't have kids myself. Like, I know what they are. I've seen them before, but I don't <laughs> have any actual children. <laughs> you need professionals to take care of them <laughs> yeah. and help take care of them. I have fluffy children on four legs called dogs. <laughs> uh, do you think that they'll increase the pilot caps with this program? I hope so. Um, I, I think I think we need something different for sure because um, the program is great in terms of transitioning caregivers to work to permanent residence. I like the the occupation specific work permit, but not employer specific. That so that caregivers who might have be laid off or are they're being abused in in a household, they can switch to another job in Canada. But what I found um, extremely, I mean, complicated is the fact that since they, when they rolled out this pilots, they prohibited LMIAs from being issued for caregivers. And since we only have 2,750 spots for the home child caregivers, which get filled up in five days, or I think it was even like even less time this year, it's impossible to get a caregiver unless it's at the beginning of the year. So a, a child caregiver, unless it's at the beginning of the year, and the permits are taking what, like a year to process? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, I don't know, it becomes moot. Like, I mean, I, I have a lot of clients who need a child caregiver right now, but by the, but if they have to wait until next year to apply because of the cap, and then they have to wait another 12 months to get them, they don't need it at that point. They just and use it for their grandchildren. Home, and home support workers even worse, right? Like, I mean, you might have a need for someone take care of your, I don't know, like elderly parents now, but not in two or three years from now. I also think with making the transition down from two years down to one year, more people are going to be eligible. So I think at least for the next couple of years, they should increase the numbers to allow those individuals to kind of have some catch up and, and submit their applications because there'd be nothing worse than they lower it. Now I qualify, yeah. but I'm capped out. So. That's a great point. Yeah, for sure. Like, as I mean, I, I think starting on April, I mean, maybe a lot of people are going to be submitting their applications and the cap could at least, I mean, one of them has been reached already, but, um, but, it, but yeah, for those applying for PR, it's, it, yeah, it might be reached sooner. And, and as you mentioned, they should just allow more people under those programs. At least for a couple of years. Yeah. I handle the spike. Yeah, exactly which will naturally flow from their decision-making. Again, Ottawa, tune in, Ottawa. <laughs> All right, so um, Andrew, we would just want to thank you for joining us today. Um, we know that you're really busy and uh, your time is valuable. Uh, you've contributed a lot of super, super valuable insights um, to our listeners. And I, I guess we would be remiss if we didn't mention that you were um, working on a book at the moment. Is that right? 
Yeah, that's correct. Uh, exactly on these topics. And one of the things I like about doing, having spaces like this podcast is that it makes you think about stuff that you can then implement into your practice and writing and, and things like that. But but yeah, we'll, we're working with Eamond on a book on uh, economic class programs. Uh, so talking about express entry, talking about provincial nominee programs, a caregiver program as well. Um, looking forward to, to yeah, to, to, <laughs> to finding more time to write and, and getting that done for sure. I hear you have really brilliant general editors for that. <laughs> we do. I'm, I'm just, I've never heard feedback. of them. That's what I'm, that's what a, the word on the street is. That's the down low. All right, Andrew. Well, we really appreciate your time. We just uh, thank you for offering those insights to our listeners today and you have a great day. Okay. Thank you, Catherine and Chantal, and have a great day as well. Need a concise guide on all practical and procedural aspects of Canadian immigration law? How about a contemporary resource that examines the fundamental avenues, requirements, and remedies for immigration? Have you heard about Iman's immigration law series? Well, duh, I think so, because we're the general editors. Yeah, it's true. Catherine Swicky and Chantal Delage are the general editors, and... Iman's practical and contemporary series offers you a clear, concise, balanced guide on the most challenging areas of immigration practice. Literally the only time in our lives that anyone has called us balanced. <laughs> Learn more about Iman's immigration law series at iman.ca forward slash ILS. Things I wish I knew, Shooby Dooby, like Scooby Dooby. Rowing your business. When I started my Canadian company, and even though I had joined a U.S. firm that I partnered with, one of the things that I found challenging is how to scale up my business. When do I know when to hire? And Chantal, you have a very successful law practice that is quite big, so I think you're going to be great at talking about this. I know it was a real leap of faith for me. Uh, I hadn't owned or operated a business beforehand, but starting to add people to the team, when you look at all the financials, you look at the work, and you have to have the belief in yourself that, yes, more clients will come. The more work I can do, the faster I can get it out the door and the more accurate it is, then I, you know, it'll, it'll figure itself out. Did you find that when you were scaling up your business? Yeah, I I sort of take a different approach to it. Like, I I think you really have to do a cost-benefit analysis. Like, if I hire an extra person, will that really pay off for itself, right? In the sense of, okay, you got to know yourself. Can you you trust yourself to really delegate, right? So you think, okay, I'm going to hire this person. And, oh, just imagine they could do this and that and this and that. But then some people are really good, not good at delegating. So they hire that person, then they underutilize them. So I, I think we have to be, you know, know the kind of people that we are and, and try to the maximum to, to delegate what we can. But also um, y- you have to figure out, like, in terms of if you're going to pay someone a salary to be on your team, how much do you need them to produce in order for it to be profitable for you? Because you don't want to add more people and get bigger just for the sake of getting bigger. If you're not going to be more profitable, then what's the point? You might as well just stay small. If you're going to make the same amount of money at the end of the day, why do you want the extra headaches of having an extra person? That's how I look at it. Absolutely. And you don't want to scale up too slow because then you might lose out on client opportunities or lose money. It's a very delicate balance. So I think, as you mentioned, you need to look at your own abilities to delegate. I think you have to look at the financials. And then I think you also need to look at the new clients coming through the door. If there is that trend of referrals, et cetera. Um, I know I started, I went from a large law firm, which was dealing with a completely different clientele, to starting fresh on the street. And it's really a lot about um, getting a few clients through the door. And I found that a lot of it was through word of mouth. Mm-hmm. And again, when you're trying to kind of do everything, the one of the things that I did right away that I loved was hire a bookkeeper. Mm-hmm. 
because I'm really great at immigration law, not so good with that whole numbers thing and filing taxes and all that stuff. So I leave that to the bookkeeper because that's her area of expertise. And it worked incredibly well because I could get clear, concise reporting. Um, And when I was audited by the, I had a spot audit by the Law Society, you know you're okay, you know you're Mm -hmm. gonna pass Um, because all your financials are good, and your record keeping's good, et cetera. And then when you look at all of those things together, taking that leap of faith to say, yes, we're going to be growing this business and making sure that you hire right, it would be my last point on that. Making sure that the individual is really on your team, they're willing to learn, they're willing to do things that are a little bit outside the scope of their strict job description because sometimes they might need to edit, you know, a a document for me to make sure that it makes sense, those kinds of things. So yeah, I totally agree with you on that. That was the last point I was going to make too, is that when, especially when you're small, if you're going from like one or two people and you're adding another person that like, there's a potential, like if you get one toxic individual in there, it, it just poisons your entire atmosphere. So you have to be so, so careful, uh, when you're small and the types of hires that you do. Things I wish I knew, Shooby Dooby, like Scooby Dooby. What are the differences between criminal and serious criminal inadmissibility? I don't know, Chantal. Maybe about three drinks? Also, understand the hurdles to overcoming medical inadmissibility. Learn all you need to know in Inadmissibility and Remedies, the third volume in Iman's newly minted immigration law series. This concise and contemporary text will guide you through the process, procedure, and strategic elements involved in helping a client overcome claims of inadmissibility, making this an indispensable resource for immigration consultants and all immigration practitioners. Get your copy today by visiting emond.ca forward slash IR and enter promo code IR10 for 10% off. Andrew, we would really just like to thank you for being on the podcast with us today. We found your insights to be very unique and valuable, and we know that time is money, so get back to work. The Welcome Home podcast is produced, engineered, and edited by Alex Ross of Never Sleeps Network, directed and published by Danan Haas, and marketing by Katrina Harley. For our listeners, Emond is offering 10% off titles in the Immigration Law series. Just visit iman.ca forward slash welcome home immigration and enter code welcome home at checkout. And we want to hear from you. Please email us with your questions or topics at welcome home at iman.ca or leave us a voicemail at phone number 416-975-3925 extension 227. My name is Danan Hawes and I'm the senior publisher at Iman Publishing. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Welcome Home Podcast. We at Iman Publishing are committed to providing best-in-class immigration law content, including our immigration law series edited by Chantelle Deloge and Catherine Sawicki, our best-selling treatise, Canadian Immigration and Refugee Law, A Practitioner's Handbook, 3rd Edition, new initiatives like the Welcome Home Podcast, as well as our EMOND exam prep ICCRC practice exams and a host of immigration law casebooks and textbooks for law school, university, and college students. EMOND is also the proud provider of most of the required resources for the Queen's Immigration and Citizenship Law Program for Immigration Consultants.